Well, I, I, I said earlier that this is going to be, uh, you know, a different service in a variety of ways. And I had mentioned in the online recording a couple of weeks ago, the week before um, Elliot preached last week, that, that this week I would make kind of a departure from our Philippians series to speak about the upcoming election and especially the period after the election. And my real interest is to address the almost certain unrest that awaits us after the election and really to prepare ourselves to respond well to that as Christ's ambassadors in the world. But, but in developing that message, I realized I, I needed to lay some groundwork first in order really to have any hope of really being heard and understood. That's actually a high aspiration in these days as everybody has a lot to say. Everybody has a lot of opinions about all kinds of things, not so much ears to hear. So whether I'll be heard and understood about anything ever uh, is, uh, is, is a, a question, a reasonable question to ask. But in order to have any hope of that, particularly on these issues and again, what, what lies beyond, I needed to lay some groundwork. Uh, ultimately, where I want to end up next week is explaining why, why I believe, as many others believe, that after the election, the chaos and confusion will be greater than they are now for a season of time, and that the divisions will run deeper than they run now, even, even within the church. That, as I hope you've gotten the sense, that is what concerns me most of all is the health and the vitality uh, and welfare of the church and peace among the brethren. And so knowing that we've probably got a season of challenge in that area coming up, um, I wanted to speak this morning uh, sort of to highlight some basic truths and, and essential truths that should guide the way a Christian thinks about voting and political engagement. Uh, already, the you know politics over the last good little while has been a divisive issue. Divisions of all sorts have been magnified uh, in 2020 in the context of pandemic and protests and all the other kind of things we've been going through. And um, there are some essential truths that ought to bring a measure of unity or at least give us some basis for hoping for unity among us even if we disagree about some of the other particulars so to put it another way what i what i want to do is identify some political ends if you will that we can agree upon even as we may disagree about the means to achieve those ends because i think there are some biblical truths that ought to govern the life of every believer who really is um, captive to the will of God, who really is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus, who follows him wholeheartedly. And so I'm gonna, I want to do that in a way that hopefully is grounded in the scriptures. And so I'm going to read from Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, and then 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 through 14. Uh, both of these verses, we, or these passages, we've touched on earlier um, in this pandemic season and lockdowns and shutdowns and those kinds of things. But Romans 13, 1-4 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists 
the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And then in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so that can be, th those passages can be summed up in this way, that God has instituted government to promote good and restrain evil. That's a theme that runs through both of those. That's essentially the way, in a nutshell, that the Westminster Confession of Faith sums that up as well. That God has instituted civil government to promote good and restrain evil. Now, we need to be reminded, I mentioned this one uh, in a message sometime back when I, I preached it from 1 Peter chapter 2, this same passage, that when Peter wrote this, when Paul wrote that to the Romans, he's talking about the Roman Empire. He's talking about the Roman emperor ruling. This is not Christian leadership. This is not godly government. And yet God uses even, even ungodly rulers to promote good and restrain evil. Because in a world full of fallen sinners who are self-interested and, and would pursue their own self-interest, even to the destruction of others left to our own devices. In that kind of world, how is order brought to a disorderly bunch of sinners? How is good brought to a world filled with people inclined to do evil? Well, one of the means that God uses to promote good and restrain evil is civil government. And so, when Christians engage in the political process, we actively participate with God in what he is doing in that arena. To put that another way, when we go to the voting booth, when we volunteer as civil servants in any way, when we even run for political office or are elected to political office and, and uh uh, petition the city or the county or whoever the case may be. Whenever we engage in that political process, we do it first as Christians. We do it first as Christians, that we, we are actively participating in what God is doing. So we have two obligations then under God. Uh, given the fact that he has instituted government to promote uh, to promote good and restrain evil, we have two obligations under God. Number one, we must aspire to promote what God calls good and, and restrain what God calls evil. 
Because you see, that's one of the first questions that comes up, right? If, if, if government is supposed to promote good and restrain evil, the question is, what is good and what is evil? Because we live in a world where that's getting turned upside down. What God calls good, man calls evil, and what God calls evil, man calls good. So we, the Christian, engaged in the political domain, must aspire to promote what God calls good and restrain what God calls evil. That's number one. Secondly, we, we must earnestly seek the means that will actually be effective in achieving that. Okay? So in other words, we, we, we don't get any credit, if you will, for having the right ideals that sound good. If you were to, if you were to uh, build affordable housing for poor people, but the reason it's affordable is it is so... Uh, cheaply made and of such inferior quality that it collapses and kills everybody inside of it. You have not done good to them, have you? That, that's a, that's a, probably a poor illustration and kind of an off-the-cuff one, but that's really what I mean by this. It, it isn't sufficient to, to aspire to do good and to have the right ideals, but we actually have to seek means that will actually be effective uh, in bringing that about. Now, part of what I want to preview for, uh, preview for you is that we need to have agreement on what those ideals are that we're promoting. We need to have a, a large measure of agreement about what God considers good and evil and that we're on the right side of both of those. That's where we most certainly need to be uh, unified. It is very likely there will be points, it is almost certain there will be points of disagreement about what are the what are the means that will actually be effective in achieving that? But if we're going to represent God's perspective on good and evil, and we ask the question, what is good in God's sight and what is evil in God's sight? Or perhaps the best place to begin is with the Ten Commandments, where the moral law is summed up for us. And then uh, to look, or maybe even look at them with a mindfulness about how Jesus illuminated our understanding of that in his own teaching and ministry. And so from that foundation, the Ten Commandments illuminated by the ministry and teaching of Jesus, I want to highlight uh, this morning four moral causes, if you will, that Christians um, ought to represent in the political arena. Uh, the, these, are, these are moral interests that we ought to be able to agree upon uh, that were unified in pursuing in the political arena. Number one is championing religious freedom. Championing religious freedom. I have a hard word saying, hard time saying the word championing, uh, but I, I I choose that and underline that on purpose. The first four commandments, uh, which are have no other gods before me. You shouldn't make any, don't make any graven images and bow down to worship them. Uh, do not take the na name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those four, first four of the Ten Commandments, uh, in a nutshell, require the believer to worship the right God rightly. And it isn't just worship him on designated days or seasons of worship in ceremonial kind of ways, but that our worship and obedience of him um, is expressed in the way we live all of life. That's what's required of us. Now, we don't have any interest in civil government telling us how we should do that. 
right? We're interested in them not telling us how we should do that. But we have every interest in ensuring that they protect our right to do it. Let me say that again in case you missed it. We don't have any interest in civil government telling us how we should worship and obey God, but we have every interest in ensuring that the government protects our freedom to do so. And I get squeamish about politicians who get squeamish about this issue. When when they want to uh, kind of obscure some things or hem and haw a little bit on this issue, it makes me squeamish. The, the Constitution doesn't guarantee us freedom of worship. It guarantees us free exercise of religion. And the, the, the difference between those is quite significant. We have the freedom to live out our religious conviction in the public square. And in, in recent years, the tide has been rising against that freedom. Almost steadily, as, as there are people, adversaries, uh, frankly, of the church, of religion in general, of God himself, adversaries who, who, who would want to uh, cause the church, force, force religion to shrink back from the public square more and more. The tide has been rising um, against this freedom for many years. I should say, uh, I think this is really important to say, the church doesn't need religious freedom in order to thrive. The church has thrived for centuries in places where the church has been oppressed. In some cases, it has thrived most in places where the church has been oppressed. That doesn't mean, though, that we go about seeking oppression. We, we steward well the freedom that we have, hopefully, um, to worship, to live publicly for God, um, to to share the gospel, to send missionaries, to do good works, and so on and so forth. We don't need that, but we steward it well. But the tide's been rising against this for many years. And listen, the opposition has become more emboldened uh, in, in recent months or years by the emergence of a new generation of Marxists and neo-Marxists. Now, I alluded to this. I made some reference to this back in the summer when I preached a message called Avoiding Deception and Division, and you could go back and find that if you're interested in hearing that a little bit more fully. But, but one of the things I think I said then, but I'll certainly say now, is this, that Marxism is a godless philosophy. It is a godless philosophy. It is anti-God, overtly so. And when given its full expression, it is one of the most evil political systems on the planet. As a matter of fact, right now, the worst uh, persecution of Christians by organizations that track such things is in communist North Korea. China has been uh, an awful offender of that as well to communist countries uh, among lots of Islamic countries, of course, and others. But it, but it is overtly an enemy of God. And if there's one thing I can say most emphatically today, as we talk about championing the cause of religious freedom, uh, the one thing I can say most emphatically is that Christians cannot be friends 
with Marxism. Why am I mentioning this in the context of this discussion about religious freedom? It is because, you know, Marxists have not got their foot, uh, a sort of a foothold in any major political party yet, but they are wiggling their toes in the door and they are, uh, they are out and overt and unapologetic in identifying themselves this way uh, and, and, and looking to gain ground and, and they're being given more voice in some places. But the, the Christian cannot be friends with Marxism. If you let that lion out of the cage, it will devour you, Christian. You can be assured of that. It does so, the Marxists do that consistently. And as we vote, as we engage politically, this is one of the things we need to be mindful of that is not even being all that sneaky at this point. That lion will devour you if you let it out of the cage. Don't try to make a house cat out of a lion. It would be foolish for the church to give the sword to a ruler that would then turn the sword on the church. When we vote, what we do is, is grant our sword, if you will. God gives government the power of the sword in order to promote good and, and restrain evil. We, we give our sword over to people who are going to wield it as our representatives. It would be foolish for the church to give the sword to a ruler who will turn it on the church. And, and, and we better be mindful of this one. I would say if I were going to be a one-issue voter, this would be the one issue, religious liberty. And uh, that's been scoffed at a little bit, and, and we've been accused of, of uh, pursuing that insincerely or, or uh, using that as our defense in insincere ways. Maybe that's been true in individual cases. I will say uh, that belongs, number one, on the list, that we as Christians champion the cause of religious freedom. Number two, that we're about the business of promoting marriage and family, promoting marriage and family. This is the second cause we ought to be able to agree on morally. And this is in essence what the fifth and seventh commandments, seventh commandments are about. We're children honoring parents, husbands and wives, not violating the marriage covenant. Those commandments work together to preserve the family. The family was the first institution ordained by God to accomplish his will. As we've already considered, God instituted civil government, but before there was government, there was a family. That God gave man and woman to each other and charged them with the primary responsibility of reproducing and raising children in the context of a two-parent household. Um, by the way, on this subject and uh, really a number of them that I'm brushing uh, today, I'll actually preach at more length on some of these in a series that I'm planning at the beginning of the year, um, but more about that later. But God gave man and woman to each other and charged them to reproduce and raise children in the context of a two-parent household. Now, for a variety of reasons, there's a, a whole host of people who haven't had that privilege. That's not their reality, either as a child or as a parent. They, they find themselves as a a single parent, single income household, and so and so on and so forth. Uh, well, God is 
gracious enough, his grace is sufficient to, to work that together for good. Uh, but the ideal, God's ideal, and the way that he designed society to be ordered at the most basic level is for man and woman to marry and have children and, and raise little worshipers and fill the earth with them, people who honor God. And the society, the society that fails to uphold that ideal on some level, even if the society is not uh, decidedly a Christian society, the society that fails to affirm the value of the traditional family will ultimately commit cultural suicide. I know that's sure to be offensive to somebody um, that I say that, but it's, a, it's already happening all over the Western world, actually. So the question is, how does my vote promote marriage and family? When I go to the voting, voting booth, how is my vote going to help promote marriage and family? The, the third cause would be protecting and preserving life. And this is at the heart of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Uh, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, that commandment is, is, is far uh, is more far-reaching than just not killing people. He says, if you're angry without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. If you insult your brother or call him a fool, you're guilty of violating this commandment. It runs uh, to the heart. It's a spiritual matter. But what should be one obvious implication of the sixth commandment is that we have an obligation to protect life and most specifically, uh, the life of the unborn. Now, I, I know that uh, this, anytime you bring up this subject, it's a sensitive one on a personal level. And, 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 and this is what I don't want people to be dismissive of because there are people listening almost surely who have, who have faced that decision um, of having an abortion themselves personally. And again, God's grace, grace covers a multitude of sins. Um, and that is, uh, in, entirely a redeemable situation. So that's not to cast shame on anybody on an individual level. But again, it is to say it's a clear implication that the unborn child, the most vulnerable around us as image bearers of God, we owe to them the obligation of protecting their lives. And while there have been periods in history where the church, especially Protestant churches, have maybe been unclear uh, or silent about this issue, the church, for all of its history, the church has stood against abortion, has identified abortion as Sin. This is not a new thing. This is not a political issue. This has been a Christian moral issue from the earliest years. There's a first century teaching guide called the Didache, and uh, that was just used a really short, concise little handbook of instruction for how um, somebody who becomes a Christian would be taught how to live as a Christian. And the Didache from the first century uh, lists abortion among the grave sins forbidden by the church. And certainly not the only sin. There's a long, long list of them. But it's been a part of uh, uh, the church 
thinking and, and morals since the earliest days of the church. And so the, the, the Christian has to say, the church has to say, abortion is not reproductive health care. We, we cannot adopt that language. Uh, there are some who have tried and are trying to make the case health care is a universal right, abortion is health care, therefore abortion is a universal right. That's how they're trying to frame it right now, and we cannot accept those terms. It is not that, and the church cannot regard it that way. And as with other issues, there may be some disagreement about what strategies, what sort of array of strategies will be most effective in reducing the number of, abortion, of abortions over time. Uh, and what, what strategies work together, not only on the issue of abortion, but otherwise protecting and preserving life. Uh, but that's a cause that we must, we must commit ourselves to. And so the question, as we go to vote, as we go to engage in the political process, how, how will my vote protect and preserve life? Cause number four is caring for the poor, needy, and marginalized. Uh, commandments 8 and 10 um, sort of carry some implications in this area. The commandments against stealing and coveting they, prov they prohibit stealing and coveting. They actually require the opposites, too, that we not set our affections on material things, that we're content with what we have, and yet we work hard, prosper as much as we're able, and then give generously to other people. That's the way the Westminster Catechism treats uh, and applies the Eighth and Tenth Commandments, that it has those, among other implications, to it, that we, that we would, in the process of all of that, not withhold from anyone anything that is due to them. That would be stealing. If we don't take it from them, uh, in other words, we don't have to take it from them to be stealing, we can just withhold from them what's owed to them. So there's this, there's this generosity and contentment um, that would be obligations of the Christian. But see, even if the Ten Commandments didn't nudge us in that direction, even if we missed the cues, in other words, from the commandments, you cannot hear the teaching of Jesus and observe how, how Jesus conducted his ministry and miss this obligation or priority, that, that he had a special concern for poor and needy and marginalized people. Part of that was because even on a spiritual level, they were... Uh, led to believe they had no hope. And he came preaching a gospel of a kingdom uh, that they were invited into when they thought they had no hope anywhere. But he had a special concern for those who lived on the margins. And we can't talk about, we can't talk sincerely anyway about Christian moral obligations in the public square without talking about care for those who live on the margins. Again, we may disagree about the policies and strategies we might use to care for them on a societal level. And so is it uh, 
higher taxes that pay for government programs that care for the poor, some would advocate for that? Is it lower taxes that stimulate economic prosperity um, and the, the whole society at large benefits, benefits from a prospering economy? Is it some combination of those two or some government incentives for, for nonprofit organizations um, to take on some of the work of providing social supports and so forth? It may be um, a combination of those or other things as far as the means of accomplishing that. But indifference, indifference to those concerns is not an option. And you know, sometimes when you listen to Christians talk about politics and talk about public engagement and talk about concern for the world, there, there is from some a deafening silence on this subject. And again, that doesn't mean that government uh, is necessarily itself the best solution to that problem, but there needs to be a solution to that problem, and Christians ought to be advocates for that solution. That has got to be part of the scope of our concern in some way, shape, or form. And so the question we ask is, how will my vote and my political engagement care for the poor, needy, and marginalized. Well, those are four issues uh, among what really could be a long list. I identify those four uh, partly because, again, I think most of those, uh, at least the first three of those, almost come right off of the surface of the Ten Commandments um, as concerns we would bring into the public square. Um, also because those are part of the political conversation right now in either or both major political parties. But obviously much more could be said about this subject and some um, on the other side of the conversation, the other side of the table, so to speak, some of those who are not Christians would, would accuse evangelicals of being uh, too narrow in our moral concerns, being concerned about the morality of others and not ourselves. What obligations is that place on ourselves having uh, not a broad enough scope so again, on some matters we ought to be vocal on that we're silent on. Some of those criticisms are, are probably legitimate, um, but, but here are some that we ought to be able to find agreement on. That if we're serious about representing the interests of Christ in the world, uh, if we're serious about promoting good, what God calls good, and restraining the evil that God calls evil, uh, then these are four issues we ought to be motivated uh, to promote and that we ought to be unified in our embrace of those. Well, that probably gives us some direction on how we might even want to pray in our response time because the closer we get to the election, the more preoccupied everybody is with it. You're your, your phone is probably blowing up with text messages uh, saying register to vote, vote. What about this issue or the other? Mailbox is filling up full of mailers, filling up full of mailers and all that kind of stuff. The closer we get to it, the more preoccupied um, we and others get about the election and the aftermath of the election. And so that, again, probably informs some of how we might need to pray. You might want to use this time even just praying for our country praying for 
direction yourself, perhaps there might be something in all of this uh, that God has used just to provoke you and to stir up some questions inside of you. And maybe you just want to pray about that and listen to how the Lord would lead you uh, out of that. You, you may want to pray for the church and peace within the church and unity even as diversity of thought remains. Because here's one thing that I've discovered in uh, really the last few years, I suppose, in the time that I've been pastoring, but um, one of the things that I've uh, discovered is that few people are willing to budge on their positions about politics. But they would love for me to try to make other people budge on their viewpoints about politics. Few people, it seems, have ears to hear. May God change that uh, enough that we would hear him and hear each other so that we might, uh, that we might walk together in unity side by side in the work of the gospel, that we might be, as we considered in uh, Philippians, um, people who glorify God, unblemished in a crooked and twisted generation. Let's pray in that direction, um, even right now, and as the worship team uh, leads us in this response. Now, would you bow with me? Now, Father, uh, thank you for what you're doing on the earth, and even when we are quite perplexed about what that might be. And we pray even now and in the weeks to come, you would guide us individually, in, in our own decisions, but also that you would guide us as a body, that you would, you would direct us toward each other, that we would labor to love one another, and as much as it depends on us, that we would be at peace with one another. God, would you work that into our hearts? Make us people of conviction, and yet people of humility, as we participate with you in promoting what's good in the earth and restraining what's evil. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.